Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Welcome to The Other Hand, a podcast by Jim Power and Chris Johns that looks at the major political, economic, and financial developments around the world from a uniquely Anglo-Irish perspective. All our podcasts can be found at our Substack site and all good podcast platforms. Afternoon, Jim. Great to be back for our latest episode of The Other Hand. The agenda today, uh, which I'll set now, uh, includes lots of things, as always. Uh, It's going to start with uh, China. Many different aspects of the Chinese economic and political story segue into various interesting stories at the moment, ranging from the G7 meeting through to latest economic data from China, stuff that the computer firm Dell has been talking about. And I know that you want to talk specifically about some or all of that. It also links into what's going on in Ukraine in some interesting ways. And the situation in Ukraine, awful though it is, is very interesting at the moment. For something completely different, I want to talk about a piece in the UK edition of the Sunday Times this week, written by a journalist called Rod Liddle. Some of our listeners will be aware of Mr. Little's output over the years. And I just want to ask a few questions, make a few points about that. Closer to home in Ireland, we have had something called a stability update from the government today. I think that there are one or two things in there that are potentially worthy of our discussion. Staying with things Irish and its economy, uh, we have had some data out out of Ireland for both the housing market and some export numbers that I think are worthy of your attention, Jim. If we get time, I've been flagging in recent podcasts the upcoming or now current earnings profits results season from the United States, and it started, and there are some very Strong numbers from companies like JP Morgan. The banking story is continuing there. Some not so good numbers from banks like Goldman Sachs. And if we get time, I will talk a little bit about that. Perhaps more importantly than that from the US is that the 
narrative that we've been talking about in recent pods about the increasing bearishness about the economy, the increasing numbers of forecasts and expectations and stories and explanations of why there is going to be a recession in the second half of the year is really interesting. And that's got a new twist because lots of markets, people, equity market people are jumping up and down saying that uh, the stock market is way too high given the supposed certainty of a recession in the US next year, uh, next, well, in the second half of this year as well. And the um, that, I think, loops back nicely into, for example, the story about the Irish economy that you're going to tell us about in, in a second, including the stability update, which I think is quite optimistic about the economic outlook and what that means in particular for exchequer finances. But if there is a US recession, of course, then Ireland is not going to be immune to that. So, Jim, let's start with China. Talk to us about what's been going on, not least with the economy there and the recent data that's been released by by China. We got first quarter Chinese growth this morning, came in at 4.5% year on year. That's up from 2.9% in the final quarter of last year. And if you remember, um, global economic sentiment pivoted towards the end of last year, the early weeks of this year. It was predicated on the sharp decline we're seeing in energy costs, but also the fact that the Chinese economy was opening up. And indeed, the Chinese economic rebound is turning out stronger than expected. Consumer spending is solid and government infrastructure investment is also solid. Uh, last year, we got 3% GDP growth for the Chinese economy, which is the lowest since the 1960s. They have a target of 5% this year. And based on what we've seen, that 5% should be achievable. Okay, so that's one story. The world's second largest economy, China, rebounding more strongly than expected, which in theory should be good for global economic activity. But then if you tie that Chinese economic story into geopolitical developments. Um, I mean, we, we, we had a statement from the G7 overnight, basically reaffirming its support for Ukraine and also reaffirming any potential support for Taiwan in the event of Chinese hostilities over the coming months, stroke years. So a very strong statement from G7, which certainly flew in the face of what um, Emmanuel Macron was saying in China on his recent visit, when he basically was arguing that the European Union should have very little to do with any conflict that might arise between Taiwan and China. So um, I have to say, from my perspective, glad to see the G7 coming out with these sort of reaffirming statements, because I think it is really, really important in relation to Ukraine, in relation to sanctions on Russia, and in relation to any possibility the Chinese might um, go into Taiwan at some stage, that um, the G7 nations remain as strong and united as possible. And I think this really does put egg on Macron's face. Um, the comments he came out with after his uh, Chinese visit struck me as being stupid at the time. I think with the benefit of hindsight and with the benefit of what the G7 is now thinking, um, I'd be stronger in that view. The relationship between you know, China and the Western world, particularly the United States, is clearly, I think, going to be the dominant geopolitical issue 
over the coming years, stroke decades. One of the manifestations of that is, and, and, and this, of course, was highlighted during COVID. It has been highlighted over the last 13 or 14 months of the Ukraine war with sanctions and with the stance that China is taking in that conflict. The, the damage that has been done to global supply chains, and we've seen um, Michael Dell um, in an interview in the Financial Times basically saying that he is coming under increasing pressure from his clients to reduce his input dependence on China. Uh, his clients are worried about the integrity of the supply chain. Uh, I, he's saying that customers are driving him in this direction, but I think this is a theme across a lot of large multinational companies at the moment, you know, increasingly uh, divesting out of China and trying to reduce the dependence on China. And this ties in with the IMF's forecast a couple of weeks ago, where the IMF said that one of the risks to global growth over the next few years was certainly the deglobalization of the world economy. And what we're seeing in relation to Dell, the Chinese supply chain, you know, this is an ongoing part of that deglobalization story. Taiwan has just announced that it's buying 400 land-launched harpoon missiles from the United States, um, and it has bought a number of um, sea-launched harpoon missiles in recent times. So the Taiwanese are, you know, they're 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 upping the ante here. They're building up their defence um, because they're becoming obviously more and more convinced that at some stage China is going to. Um, resume hostilities so it's a strange difficult world back back in our days working in financial markets we were um, always very mindful of what the g7 was saying but generally then it was in relation to interest rates more particularly about exchange rates so when you had the g7 coming out with these overtly political statements revolving around china taiwan ukraine russia um, the game has changed and uh, it's a potentially scary story. Long gone are the days when uh, we used to pass G7 statements for what they would uh, be saying about the dollar. As you say, Jim, it's, it's all very geopolitical now. And the statement was in part papering over the cracks between world leaders, cracks that have appeared essentially because of what Emmanuel Macron has been up to. Most of the differences concern the French leaders' attempts to remain close to China at a time when the rest of them, the G6, if you like, are combining to try and put China and Russia together and to distance themselves from those two countries. Uh, Macron has supported China's peace initiative when it comes to the Ukraine war. And that's angered other Western countries who really are wondering why Xi Jinping has yet to put in that famous phone call that is much mooted but has yet to appear into President Zelensky of Ukraine. Germany has a newish foreign minister um, who was also in Beijing last week. It wasn't just Macron visiting China. And uh, she came away with a very, very different perspective to Macron's. And she emerged, it's reported, much more sceptical about China than before, um, as they say, according to people familiar with her thinking. She felt that she'd been lectured to by the new Chinese foreign minister, Qin Gang, apologies for my pronunciation. And unlike Macron, the German finance minister vowed that Europe won't look away, and that's a quote, if China violates international law over Taiwan. So it, it's pretty fruity stuff. Um, it's 
of course, very linked not just to China and its role in the world economy, but also China and its partnership with Russia and the stance it's taken over the Ukraine war. And if I might just on that quickly just go through what's been happening in Ukraine, because one of the things that we don't see too much of at the moment are many headlines about what's going on on the front line. We see things like Putin's visit to troops in in the Ukraine bit that he's occupied. Zelensky has been to the front line as well. And I think this is all a prelude to something very big. I think the, the, the mood music is clear that Ukraine is gearing up for a very big offensive. Lots of military analysts, bloggers and other experts are asking the question, what are they going to do? Are they going to attack on a broad front? Are they going to attack in a narrow corridor? Are they going to try and split the Russian forces between those that are there guarding Crimea? Um, are they going to come through a, a narrow gap and circle around and attack Russia from the rear? All these sorts of speculations are out there. There's lots of concerns amongst military types about Ukraine's ability to coordinate these very rapid troop movements, uh, movements of heavy armor, coordinating with air support. It's something the Ukrainians have never done before, not even during their offensive of last year. And the consensus, for what it's worth, is that they may make some gains, but they won't make a big difference to the outcome of the war. And this is really about what happens next. And then after that, depending on how well Ukraine do, what happens at the negotiating table? I, I say so-called consensus because remember at the beginning of the war, the consensus was that Ukraine would fall within three days. So um, I'm no military expert, so I don't know. But it strikes me that it's worth remarking that um, something big is brewing, we think, um, in the war in Ukraine. And really, it, it requires a number of things to fall into place, not least is that the ground, currently very wet and muddy following the winter, is thawing out. And once it firms up and can take the heavy armour that's currently being supplied by various NATO countries to Ukraine, tanks and other big, big pieces of kit, um, we're going to get a lot more news than we have been getting from, from the front line. Sadly, it looks like the war is about to escalate rather than go off in any other direction. And, you know, I think that's Sad, it, it, but it, it also looks to me to be inevitable. But let's conclude our discussion of geopolitics and move on to something uh, quite different. Jim, I wanted to mention an article that appeared in the UK's Sunday Times, uh, the UK edition. I imagine it was available uh, at least online in Ireland. And it's written by a journalist called Rod Little, who's got lots of form in this regard. He's generally regarded as being quite a right-wing journalist, shall we say, I don't want to say anything too pejorative. I don't want to get myself sued. Um, I want to be as accurate as I can. Rod Little writes for The Spectator as well, uh, occasionally, which is the um, often described as the House Journal of the Conservative Party and is often considered to be also very, very right wing. And I just want to read out a couple of bits of this article. I don't want to take them out of context, so I don't want to too selectively quote uh, but I just want to give you a sense of what he has been saying and why I am raising it. So to begin, this is little speaking now, writing rather. While Joe Biden is hopping around Ireland like a senile gibbering leprechaun with a plastic shamrock sticking out of his nose, to be sure, to be sure, I thought it might be a good time to examine a couple of the myths that have been on public display during his visit. The first is the mythical Irishness, and he spells it with an O, 
of almost every American living north of the Mason-Dixon line and east of the Rockies. Biden does have Irish ancestors, but he also has British ancestors. So, of course, this has been a common refrain in the UK over recent time, not just Lidl, pointing out Biden's Britishness. It's almost as if they've been hurt, their feelings of hurt. But this is where the rubber hits the road for me in the article. Little goes on. Devoid of a meaningful history of their own, the Americans like to borrow one. Ireland fits the bill well because, as everybody knows, despite being oppressed, and that's oppressed spelt with a U, not with an O, this is Little trying to be Irish, despite being oppressed by the British, I've no idea where he gets British spelt with two Ds in the middle from as an attempt again to be Irish. Despite being oppressed by the British for a thousand years, they are a plucky and ineffably cheerful people, forever dancing jigs in their peat bogs and advising us all to enjoy the crack. Now, if I stopped there, I think people's um, heads would rightly explode, whether you're Irish or not. And I know one young man, a son of mine actually, who got really annoyed by this and other aspects of this article, drew my attention to it, actually. My son's actually written to the editor of the Sunday Times complaining about Little's words. And I pointed out to my son that actually, although Little's words are offensive, they are, in my opinion, disgraceful. He is a clever writer, and he knows that this kind of thing, um, even he can't get away with, because there is a concluding sentence to this particular paragraph from which I have just read, in which all of those very offensive views about Ireland and the Irish are qualified in what I consider to be quite a weasel way. And he says about those things that he has just said about dancing jigs and all that other horrible stuff, this is the dim-witted boilerplate US view of Ireland. So Little is saying, these aren't my views, these aren't Rod Little's views, these are the dim-witted views of some people in the United States. Now I think there's a lot of nudge-nudge-wink-wink going on here, because he knows that he can't actually indulge in what might be construed as hate speech. Some people might actually consider it to be xenophobic or or even racist. Um, But that would open up a whole other discussion about, you know, can British people be racist about the Irish? um, Or is it just pure xenophobia? We get into definitions of words and all the rest of it. But it's awful stuff, isn't it, Jim? It's, It's just dreadful, even though he has qualified his remarks and said that these horrible horrible things that he's saying about Ireland and the Irish, other views of other people and not Rod Liddles. How do you react as an Irish person to this kind of stuff? I'm not sure if it's racist or xenophobic or just pure ignorance. Um, it's it's hard to define what racism really is. Um, I have to say from a personal perspective, I, I have always been infuriated at the willingness of people to judge people based on where they're from, what color their skin is, what religion they are, uh, whatever attributes or characteristics they have. Uh, Personally, I try and judge everybody and I hope treat everybody on the basis of how they behave, particularly how they behave towards me. So, I I mean, I I do find that grossly offensive, but there's there's nothing new here. I mean, they've said similar things about the French over the years. Um, There is a body of person and opinion in uh, the United Kingdom that is blatantly racist and that basically hates anybody that's not a blue blood Brit. So I think it actually says a lot more about him than it does about the Irish. Uh, But I have to say I would um, take my hat off to your son for actually 
taking the time to react to this and send a letter into the editor. Uh, it remains to be seen whether the editor will publish it or not. I wouldn't get terribly annoyed about it personally because, as I say, I think it says a lot more about the person who wrote it than the um, people that the article was aimed at. So I leave it at that. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombus, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombus. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Before we do finally finish with Rod Little, and hopefully we'll never mention him or that type of journalism ever again, uh, I'd just like to say that not everybody in Britain writes articles like that or thinks like that. Unfortunately, as you say, Jim, there are some, and I apologise to our Irish listeners for, for those kinds of things, uh, but it's it's not a majority opinion, I would assert. So let's move on. Let's move on to things Irish and hopefully something slightly less offensive and the story about the latest numbers coming out of the both the housing market and the Irish trade situation and indeed in the broader context of the government's very important stability update that it's published today. So over to you mate. Yeah the Central Statistics Office has just published the external merchandise trade data for the first two months of the year. So we're talking about January, February and overall exports are 0.2% down on a year earlier. One of the key reasons for that is there's a decline of almost 10% in medical devices and pharmaceutical products. Um, I have no idea what the basis for that is at this point in time. And it's always difficult to draw any conclusions on the basis of a couple of months data. But I, I suspect there may be some rollback from the massive growth we saw in that sector during the period of the pandemic and that things are now starting to settle down a little bit and normalize. Uh, but it's, it's one to keep an eye on. Um, I guess from an, indig- an indigenous economic perspective, uh, the food sector growing by 16.7%, um, and, and that that is good news. Uh, late last week, we got housing market data that we didn't talk about, and I just want to very quickly summarize. This is the CSO's house price data series, and I would say that this series there is a lag of three to six months. So what we're talking about now, okay, it's it's published for the month of February, but it does reflect market conditions a few months earlier. But what the data show effectively is an ongoing deceleration in house price inflation. National average prices in the year to February up by 5%. Uh, in May of last year, that was running at 15.1%. And indeed, um, in the month of January and February, it declined um, on consecutive months. Outside of Dublin, the annual rate of house price inflation running at 6.4%. That's down from 17.1% in March of last year. So a significant deceleration there. And Dublin, um, I suppose most interesting, the annual rate down at 3.2%. 
13.2% a year ago. Um, and indeed, between September and February of this year, average prices in Dublin have fallen by um, 2.1%. So um, and we've discussed this. There's no major surprises here. You know, with that rising interest rate environment, certainly you would expect house prices to be losing momentum. Um, but, uh, you know, it's it's good news to have this happening. But, um, and this, I think, warrants a much greater discussion at some stage, Chris, again, uh, just the housing crisis and what's going on there. Moving on to the stability program update that the Department of Finance has just published. Um, it has to publish this a few times a year as an input to the European Union on what's happening in the economy, more particularly in relation to fiscal policy. Um, the Department of Finance pointed out today, actually, that the Stability and Growth Pact that was suspended during COVID and during the Ukraine crisis, that this is planned, the EU will reignite it in 2024. So in other words, government policy, government budgetary policy across the European Union um, for 2024 will have to abide by the rules of the Stability and Growth Pact again. Um, the main one being um, limiting deficits to 3% of GDP. And that has all sorts of implications for public expenditure. But anyway, getting back to the stability program, um, the, the story is a strong one. There's no doubt about that. Uh, the department talks about the headwinds that the economy has faced over the last 12 months. The Ukraine war, uh, the broadening price pressures we're seeing coming through into non-energy goods and services. And that's a common feature of, I think, most developed economies at the moment. And the third factor would, of course, be the increase in interest rates we've seen since July of last year. But despite those headwinds, the economy growing very strongly. And um, the department is attributing this to, number one, the resilience of the labour market. Secondly, the stability of the banking system. And thirdly, the fiscal situation. You know, we're still running significant budget surpluses. Tax revenue growth is very strong. So this does give... Um, the economy, a certain level of resilience in facing into these challenges. But looking at the specific forecasts, and I will bore the listeners again with the differentiation between gross domestic product GDP and real GNI star, gross national income star. That is the measure when you strip out what the CSO describes as the effects of globalization. But for this year, GDP forecast to grow by 5.6% and GNI star by 1.6%. Next year, GDP growth expected to moderate somewhat to 4.3%, but GNI star actually picking up to grow by 2.1%. So you can see the ongoing divergence and the difference between those two metrics of economic measurement. Uh, but the department's outlook is a pretty upbeat one. There's no doubt about that. And, you know, it flies in the face of a lot of the extreme negativity um, we see, particularly in relation to the UK, the United States economy at the moment. Um, the other, I think, interesting feature of this is, and this is something we've discussed again in many different contexts, but... Um, the unemployment situation expected to remain very tight. And from 2024 to 2026, 
unemployment is forecast to average 4.5% per annum. And employment is expected or projected to increase from 2.547 million in 2022 to 2.7 million by 2026. So whatever way you slice and dice this update, you know, it is a pretty upbeat one. Um, it does present a pretty positive picture of the economic environment for the foreseeable future. Uh, but of course, it does, as you'd expect, highlight some of the risks, particularly on the fiscal side. Um, this year, the department is estimating that around 12 billion of corporation tax revenues will be um, of a windfall nature and as a consequence, um, vulnerable to future shocks. And in recognition of that, the department has already put six billion into into the National Reserve Fund, four, uh, two billion last year and four billion in February of this year. Um, but as I say, whatever way you look at it, Chris, this is a pretty upbeat assessment of what's happening in Ireland at the moment. It does stand out, I think, in significant contrast to what the UK economy is experiencing at the moment. Absolutely. There was a fantastic article by Martin Wolf in the FT this week, only yesterday, I think, in which he rehearsed a lot of the things that you've heard me say on this pod, a lot of the things that I've written for our Substack site about why the UK economy just continues to flatline. You talked a lot there about Irish economic growth, a lot of Irish economic growth, and there isn't any in the UK. And it's a stark, stark contrast that I don't think enough people make make enough of, actually, um, the two very, very different experiences and all of the reasons why we do have that very big growth gap between the two near neighbours. Uh, the, the British economy is in serious trouble, and I, and I, and I make no apology for mentioning it again, Jim, although I know that you sometimes take issue with one or two things I say about the UK. But it's the US that interests me, because I suspect that if there are some vulnerabilities for that optimism over Irish economic growth from the Department of Finance, it's in the US. Because we've spoken about this really in puzzled tones, and I think we still will be puzzled about it. The um, the way in which commentators, analysts, forecasters, economists in the States seem to take it almost now as a given that the second half of this year going into next, there'll be something of a recession in the United States. The latest manifestation of this recession narrative in the States is coming out of the stock market, actually. Equity market analysts, strategists, gurus are saying that given that there is going to be a recession in the United States, the stock market is too high. And uh, they're saying explicitly um, in several places that the stock market is being irrational. It's a big call. Um, I've no idea whether it's right or wrong, but it is noticeable that that in recent days has been the new narrative coming out of Wall Street investment banks, other financial institutions in the States and, and indeed in Europe, that the US market is, is looking to be incorrectly priced. Uh, but um, we shall see. And um, I, I suspect that the, the vulnerability for that Department of Finance forecast is what is going to happen in the United States. Um, I agree, actually, that there is everything in place for a slowdown in the US. And I think it's going to come via a credit crunch. We've talked about that. The whole banking crisis thing has gone quiet. But I do think there is a silent cull of credit going on in the States with people um, pulling back institutions, pulling back on lending. And I think that part of the narrative is the one that we need to watch. But so far, the, the, the idea of a US recession, and therefore something that affects all of us, 
is very much in the forecast, not in the numbers. Chris, you've been watching the US banking results that are starting to emerge this week. Um, what is the overall impression you're getting? Mixed. Mixed, I think, Jim, but basically good. Giant firms like JP Morgan and Bank of America have produced stellar results and one or two others, um, really surprising on the upside. Goldman Sachs is the notable one to surprise on the downside, and that's because I think they've not made quite so much money in bond trading. Goldman's results are much more volatile than anybody else, than a lot of other financial institutions because of the nature of the business that they face. But JP Morgan, for me, are the bellwether, and they're, they're making money hand over fist, even more than people previously expected. So uh, I think that the, the tone of the banking results is that this is a good environment for some for the majority of banks, and that's to do with their profit margins, something we've talked about a lot. But uh, so far, so good for the larger U.S. institutions. The, the whole credit crunch story, the problem areas for the U.S. banks are actually in the small and medium-sized banks, and we haven't seen too many of those report yet. Those that have seem to be doing all right. Um, nothing untoward at the moment. So fingers crossed um, the profits of these companies will uh, not add to the credit crunch or the lack of profits, but um, I still think that we are going to see a tightening of lending standards coming through in the narrative of particularly the small and medium-sized banks. Okay, interesting. Um, from an Irish perspective, that's all really important. So listen, Chris, um, we've covered a lot today. Uh, good to talk and uh, look forward to talking to you later in the week. You have been listening to Chris Johns and Jim Power on the other hand. We hope you enjoyed it. Our back catalogue of podcasts can be found on our Substack account, www.cjpeconomics.substack.com or on podcast platforms such as Apple and Spotify. If you would like to listen to the podcast free of advertisements, you can sign up to our Substack account. Comments and feedback are much appreciated.